right, everybody. So today on the podcast, we have Dr. Alan Bacon. How are we doing, man? Good. Thanks for having me on, David. Yeah. Yeah. So I like the shirt so much so that we're actually matching here. So I'm, nice. I'm rocking this. <laughs> um, not sponsored, but honestly, like, so I don't know when you sent this to me, maybe over the summer. And I, I literally, like, I don't buy a ton of clothes. And so I just, I'm good with what I've got. I've had the same leg day shirt forever. And it was like, all right, I need something new. And this has become my new leg day shirt. It's just like a very, like you, cause I'm used to going a little bit smaller and you're like, this is true to size. This was a, uh, it's very comfortable. So at some point I will have to get a few more, but definitely shout I mean, out for the shirt. Associating it with leg day might be a good or a bad thing, depending on how you look at that. Right. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I guess that's just a little intro to you. Um, I have some, like, I guess some using points that I'll comment on as well, but you want to give people just your general background. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I actually, uh, have a very similar background to yours, which is kind of interesting. I mean, both of us have doctorates in dental surgery. I think you're you're a DDS, right? Not a DMD. Correct. Okay. Yeah, both of us have the doctorates in dental surgery. Um, and um, and you know, while I was practicing, um, you know, I had a lot of things going on in my life. I had my my father got cancer, and um, he ended up passing from it. But one of the things that we talked about before that, and he was a dentist too, was um, you know, I had asked him, "Do you have any regrets about?" Um, you know, about anything in your life. And one of the things that he said was he wished he had spent more time pursuing some passions and, and spending time with family. And at the same time I was doing, um, I was doing surgery at, uh, it was Christmas Eve, eight thirty PM. I was missing a, um, a, a Christmas Eve dinner with my in-laws. And I thought about all of that. And I thought, you know, um, I'm really into fitness. I was formulating for the supplement industry at the same time, professionally mm -hmm. as a side gig. And uh, I thought, you know what, maybe I should start a um, fitness and nutrition coaching business and uh, and see where that goes. And I continued practicing for about three years while running Maui Athletics. And um, and then the business took off to the point where it was self-sustaining and it was allowing uh, my wife and I the quality of life that we wanted. And, um, you know, so I went all in with that. And I think that it was one of the, um, you know, great choices in my life, even though that kind of thing can be scary because you leave something that has um, so much job security and you spent so much time, you know, getting that, that degree and, and building your skill set there that it's, it's a really scary proposition for a lot of people to do. Um, but it was the right move for me. And I was gl glad to have that, that kind of conversation with my dad and that, that insight into, um, into chasing that type of thing, because it's really worked out well for me, um, you know, moving forward and being happy with everything that I do and having the quality of life that I do. Um, and I think that a lot of people will prioritize money um, over quality of life. And I, I don't think that that's a bad thing if you need that exact amount of money, but I think we, a lot of us think that we need a lot more than we do. Sure. Sure. And, uh, and minimizing that and, and focusing on quality of life has really done me well. Yeah, no, that's awesome. It, it's funny. So when we first, because we were following each other before I realized you were a dentist. Yeah, and then yeah. um, I just found out recently, not only do we have the same degree, we went to the same dental school, right? Right. So that right. was kind of crazy. We yeah. missed each other by, I don't know, maybe six or six to eight years, something like that. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, very, very interesting. And then just happened to meet in the fitness industry. And actually, a lot of people don't know this, but uh, maybe maybe the most, uh, I don't know, stark contrast there was Jeff Nippard. So Jeff Nippard actually did two years of dental school. 
And Did then, he? yeah, maybe it was one year. He started dental school. He started the track. And now, you know, obviously he's big time YouTube and fitness and all that. So mm-hmm. um, it is interesting to see that. But yeah, the whole like passion versus stability thing. It's not, I've talked with a few other people about as well, because they're pretty much polar opposites, right? In terms of dentistry versus fitness, like fitness is like what's hot now. And it, it's like a lot of like catchy stuff. And, mm-hmm. you know, like you, you have a full company, right? And you have mm-hmm. like a, a, you know, pretty active Facebook group. And so there's more stability there, but some of the people on Instagram, I mean, it's just like, you know, flying by the seat of their pants versus our careers. It's like, and also with fitness, a lot of times it's, it's younger based, you know, it's a, it's a younger group. And so with, yeah, well, I mean, just to your point, I mean, this, because this is becoming so social media based, a lot of it is based off of look, because I don't think that this is not condemnation, but I think that the average person doesn't know how to vet credible information Sure, and you don't know how to vet credible information in the same way that if I went to a mechanic, I wouldn't be able to tell a random mechanic this is wrong. You know, I wouldn't be able to say that because it's not my field. So it's, right. it's understandable. So what people end up doing is they, they do one of two things, either they use follower count or they use a person's physique as, uh, as credentials essentially. Yeah. Yeah. And so, and so to your point, yeah, it's difficult to have stability in a career as you age in fitness, because you're not going to keep up with that 30 year old. You know, right, right. And and like versus in dentistry, you know, I mean, like, I'm sure you got the same comments right out of school. It's like you're placing an implant. It's like, have you done this before? You look like <laughs> yeah. you're 20 years old, right? And right. So, right. You know, whereas as we age, we almost mm-hmm. we get more, credit, uh, more credibility. More credibility. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So it's it's just very interesting. But obviously, I'm still doing the fitness thing. Obviously, you're super involved with it. Um, mm-hmm. It's just like, I don't know if I would ever make that full jump. But I, you know, in your case, and I know you also mentioned like you don't have kids so that you can kind of afford in that sense to be a little bit more fluid. Um, right. But it's awesome. You've taken it to the level that you've taken it. Yeah. I mean, I think that you've done a good job in blending the two because you, you, I mean, we've talked about behind the scenes about your business and all that stuff and, you know, with dentistry. And I think that, um, that it seems to, to work really well for you. Um, and so particularly if you have family coming up, maybe one of the things that you do is you, is you say, okay, well, I need a little bit more of that stability rather than than diving completely into something like this, right. but I really, I really do have a passion with this. So you, you have that on as, as your side thing. And, and initially that's what I was doing too with the, um, with the professional supplement formulating. So, yeah. you know, that gave me a foot in the door. And I think that that was one of the reasons that I had an easier transition into fitness when I initially started, um, because I already had some contacts in the industry, people that I knew, you know, people to ask questions to, and whenever you have that, um, essentially parachute to be able to ask some people some questions to get started. It can make a big difference. Sure. Sure. So, so you had the supplement aspect, Uh, obviously you've got like some merchandise you sell, you do coaching. Is there Mm -hmm. any other aspect to the business there? Um, so I also do consulting for other coaches, you know, other coaches will hire me and, and we'll go over different ways to improve the practices that they, that they do. Now I'm not a business coach, like those ones that'll message you and say, Hey, do you want to make 10,000 this right, month? Right, right. I don't do that. Um, but I have a very, if you've ever read my blog on my website, I have a very evidence-based approach and, um, and a lot of people want to cut through a lot of that bullshit and see, okay, well, you know, we can't get all of our answers from anecdote. We can't get all of our answers from research. So what does the research say and how can that guide us? And a lot of coaches will contact me and set up consults to ask questions about the practices that they do for actually helping their clients or, or, you know, what they do with nutrition and fitness. And we go over that, we go over, um, 
research backing when it's possible, anecdote when it's necessary. And, um, and, you know, so that's, that's something that I've been, I've been doing more and more recently um, because there seems to be a, just like you were saying with social media becoming bigger and bigger, um, it becomes even more difficult for coaches to know who to trust, particularly newer coaches. Yeah. And, um, and this is a way for people to, to kind of boost their, their first couple years and sidestep a lot of those mistakes that they might've made. Yeah. Yeah. Which is awesome. Cause, and it's tough because when it comes to nutrition and training, especially nutrition, everybody has an experience, right? And and so to your point earlier, like nobody's going to, I mean, maybe occasionally, but very rarely is somebody going to come in my office and tell me, you know, that I'm doing this wrong or that based because they did this one thing and it worked for them, you know, but mm-hmm. when it comes to diet, everybody eats, every, right? Every so. person that's ever used a spoon is a, is a, an authority on nutrition. Right. So <laughs> how do you, how do you kind of get around that? I mean, I guess talk a little bit about your approach. I know you wanted to go into some specific topics too. Um, well, so you're talking about essentially addressing some things that may not be completely accurate or maybe a misinterpretation of, of, uh, yeah, and then, you know, either experience. I mean, the best thing that you can do, you've seen arguments online and anytime there's an argument online, there's a very slim chance that you're going to change anybody's mind. Mm-hmm. So the best thing that you can do is acknowledge what they're saying and then present evidence that may be a counterpoint to what they're saying. As long as you can explain your stance and potentially explain why their stance may be a misinterpretation. For instance, the the conversation about, okay, well, and this is a good lead-in for the topic today, but okay, how do I lose body fat? Now, the real answer is based on the current research that we have, that it is based on energy balance. If you have protein and calories equated in, in, in different diets, whether you choose carnivore, keto, standard, intermittent fasting, they all seem to provide the same results from a weight loss standpoint, right? The argument against that, that a lot of people make is that, well, if insulin's high, this is going to affect things or, or, you know, metabolic damage or all these things. Well, you can point out, okay, well, you know, here's this research that shows that insulin, yes, is a storage hormone. And when you have extra calories, it can store more. But when you're in a calorie deficit, there's nothing to store. So the energy balance trumps that. So you you kind of explain it in, yes, I see where you're coming from and why this thought may be in place. But this is why under the circumstances that we're actually discussing, it isn't relevant. So if you can do that, that makes things a lot easier. Um, but it's very difficult to just tell somebody, no, they're wrong and not being able to back yourself up. So the best thing that you can do is go over the argument, present why their argument may be misinterpreted, present your evidence, and then ask them for support to why they think, you know, the, the thought that they have. And usually what you'll find is they'll, they'll share a, uh, the first result that they get off of Google, mm-hmm. which is somebody's blog that has like no citations or, you know, and then you're saying, okay, well, if we've presented you with this and that doesn't have any backing, you know, where do we go from here? And then leave it up to them. Right. I don't think that you're going to convince anybody straight out, but you can present people with information. And, and what I find is usually um, people are going to be resistant to begin with, but hopefully within a day or two after they've calmed down, they'll go back and they'll look at that stuff that you presented and, and, and make some adjustments. Yeah. Yeah. And definitely as, as people who, you know, have, you know, the influencer topic and whatnot, but people who have a following, I think a lot of times it's for those people who are kind of on the edge, right? Like there's people who I either won't talk to, or if I talk to them, I'm not going to do it privately. Like I'll say, okay, we can discuss this, you know, on a, maybe like if it's a public Facebook page or a podcast or something like that, because 
more people can learn. But I think at some point there is almost this, I don't know, you almost have to accept that some people you're, you're just not going to reach. And then that's just kind of how it is. To... There, well, if you're talking about influencers themselves, as opposed to the average person, that's even harder. Yeah. And it's even harder with influencers themselves because you've got two things in play. You have ego in play. And, um, and you know, certainly I'm not going to speak for you, but certainly even, even I'll fall for that, you know, at times. And then I'll look back over stuff and I'll say, okay, I was wrong there. And then, and then I'll publicly say I was wrong there and this is why. Um, but the biggest issue that you'll find with influencers is that they, they can't admit if maybe they're wrong because then they feel like they lose credibility in the, the sight of their followers. But even more so if they feel like it's going to hurt their bottom line, because sure. I mean, for nearly nearly 20 years now i've been uh you know crusading against bcaa's for for most people, you know in BCAAs, most applications yeah. <laughs> um crusading against the need for a reverse diet since there's doesn't seem to be any evidence that that does anything or that that metabolism is even damaged to begin with so between um, those two you and lane norton probably didn't get along <laughs> um we had different viewpoints yeah and uh, <laughs> and and i mean now there's enough evidence to show that neither of them particularly do anything. I mean, BCAs yeah. don't really do anything. I mean, yes, in certain very, very niche circumstances, you can, you can argue for, for something like that, but um, you know, for the majority of, of the reason that people are using them and particularly, I mean, for BCAAs, particularly for people that were, everyone was saying, let's use them while you're fasted. So it'll mm -hmm. prevent muscle loss. And then Wolf 2017 came out and it's like, shit, this increases muscle loss when you supplement BCAAs in a fasted state. Um, and so, you know, there's, there's a lot of stuff that that is difficult to address with people that make money off of pushing certain things sure and okay. i'm not i'm not saying that if you make money off of a certain thing that you're inherently wrong but i'm saying that when you're if you're a, a lay person and you're watching two supposed professionals and authorities discuss something that is something to consider and then look at the levels of evidence that are being presented you know and and if one person says, okay, well then show me any evidence that a reverse diet, because there is evidence that a reverse diet, there are some studies that show that there's no increase in metabolism or anything like that, um, compared to literally just going to maintenance immediately. Because what you're doing is you're elongating that hypocaloric situation. You're elongating your time in the deficit, which is still some negative outcome, some metabolic adaptation. And so why not just go right to maintenance? And, um, and you can say, okay, well, this is the study that, that suggests that there's no increase to metabolism. Do you have another one that shows that there is an increase? And then you can discuss those two things. And if you're a person that is trying to be objective about it, if the, uh, if the, if the response is, well, in my clients, it works well, yeah. <laughs> right. Then right. maybe we're on the wrong track here, or maybe there's another reason that it's working and, and, you know, the discussion can go into that direction. But I, I think that being on the lookout for people that particularly sell programs or, or ideologies, um, you know, and I think a lot of times people don't really realize, like if they're making YouTube videos and you're clicking on it, you're making them money. So just because they're not directly selling something to you doesn't mean they're not selling something to you. Sure. And uh, and I think that that's something that's lost on a lot of people. Yeah. What's that quote? It's something like, if you don't know what's being sold to you, like you're what's being sold, like you're the product, you know, talking about. Yeah. Yeah. And, and with social media, that's a very real thing because, you know, views are, it, it, it's, it's income. 
and um and particularly on things like like YouTube where you can monetize that. And now they're starting to monetize Instagram in, in a similar way. Mm -hmm. I mean, yeah. uh, you know, Facebook is probably the one that's the least monetized, but it's, it's, I prefer Facebook the most, and maybe it's mm -hmm. because I'm elderly at this point, but I prefer Facebook the most because it's the one where, where I can have conversations with people really well and in groups, Yeah, you know, on Instagram, you do not have conversations in groups. Instagram's horrible so for that. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's really bad. And so the people that do really well on Instagram are the people that are, are a little bit more flash. Right. And that doesn't mean that they don't have substance. Most of them don't, but it but it does mean that flash is the thing that really drives Instagram. Whereas Facebook, you can't get by with flash. You you literally have to know what you're talking about to get by on, on Facebook. Um, I think TikTok's and, probably I don't have a TikTok, but I but I think it's probably even worse, right? I mean it's like TikTok's what, worse. seconds. There's and everything mm -hmm. also with Instagram, it's it's just kind of lost. Like Facebook, some stuff gets lost on Facebook, but like you said, it's like paragraphs. Um, I came from the years of forums. I don't know if you're ever, ever on Me too. forums. Yeah. But I was on a lot of them. And, you know, I mean, you could search a thread from years ago and mm -hmm. you just had that information. And um, so to me, switching from forums to Instagram, it's just like, what is this? But that's just yeah. how it is. Well, and that's when initially when I started, you can, I mean, like I said, you can check my blog on my website and it's, it's literally all intensely cited as much as I possibly can, because I don't want people to look at, at me and me have to, to have to say, Hey, trust me. Mm -hmm. you know, I want you to be able to say, okay, well, he's saying this, this is where he's getting that information. If I disagree with it, can I find a counterpoint or can I find a hole in what he's saying? And I'm okay with, with that conversation. If you want to say, Hey, I don't agree with this because of this in the, in the, in the points, but then at least back it up, you know, yeah. you know, have something to say about it, but that's where, Forums were really good because you could have those back and forth conversations with a large group of people, very similar to how Facebook does it. Um, and so many people could learn from that. Whereas Instagram, particularly with where they've gone since about 2018, I mean, that's just been nosediving in, mm -hmm. um, in quality of information because it's, it's, it's little sound bites to elicit emotion rather than information to, to actually get you to learn something. Um, and so it really depends on how you want to learn. Um, you know, certainly there are, there are people that do a really good job on Instagram and, um, and blend the two very well, but it's difficult. And it's again, difficult for the layperson to understand who is credible enough to trust since this is now an entertainment source rather than an information source. Sure. Yep, definitely. Uh, so I, I would imagine that we work with similar populations in terms of the client base. I, I find that for me, it's a lot of beginner intermediates. And most of the time, and I think this probably ties in with what you want to discuss. Most of the time it's, Hey, I've been doing this for a little while. I have this plateau. I've been kind of stuck. Um, you know, I know you've been doing this for so long. So what did you do to either like motivation wise, keep you going or just physically to keep progressing? Uh, is that more or less one of the more common things you come across as well? I mean, there's, there's different reasons why, why a stall would happen. Um, and it could be either broad categories. It could be either nutrition based or it could be fitness based. And I find that, um, systematically trying to figure things out is probably the best way to go. And I had talked to you about this before we, um, before we got on air that, um, the way that I've set this up to talk about this is a little bit bullet pointy, but it's a little bit bullet pointy because I want you to go, or I want the people that are listening to this to be able to go from point to point and say, okay, I've checked this. Is this working? Yes, this is working. Okay. Go on to the next one. And, and I find that doing it that way is the best way to identify this because you've probably realized with the people that you've worked with that 
there is a large variety of um of different aspects or, or things that, that could lead to a stall. And so figuring out what it is among this whole host of things is sometimes very difficult. And that's why plateaus and stalls can be um, extremely frustrating for people because it's hard to identify. Sure. So first, what I would do is I would look at, um, I would look at nutrition itself as, as my starting point. And we touched on a good bit of what I wanted to talk about to start that, the, the, the quick background information. We know that energy balance is the driver of weight loss or weight gain. Um, if protein and calories are equated, then we are likely going to see a similar amount of weight loss, no matter what we decide to use. What I think confuses a lot of people is that average resting metabolic rate for sedentary people is actually really low. Um, you know, you, you will often hear people say, oh, well, if a trainer or a nutrition coach has you on 1200 calories a day, they're probably doing something wrong. This may or may not be the case. And I, I you can give your, uh, your personal view on that, but I found that if you're working with beginner and intermediate, um, general population people, as opposed to athletes, sometimes it is low, uh, you know, looking at the research, the average resting metabolic rate for men is 1700 calories per day. The average resting metabolic weight rate for women is 1400 calories per day. So if you talk to any coach, and this is before this is before activity, this is just resting metabolic rate. If right. you talk to any coach, typically what a coach will tell you is between uh, 250 to 500 calorie deficits are reasonable. Is that would you agree with that? Yeah. Okay. So if we're saying that, if we're taking off 250 calories from a 1400 calorie female that is relatively sedentary, we're under 1200 calories. So, you know, this, this calorie rate can be a very deceptive thing for people. Now, obviously movement will add in calories on top of that. Um, and, uh, and, you know, depending on if you have a, um, a, an active job that could be significant. I mean, you can have, um, step counts that can bring you to a, a thousand extra calories of, of burn a day, but Working with GenPop, I actually do keep um, logs of step counts, and I've got some people that are pretty commonly between three thousand and five thousand steps per day. That is extremely sedentary. Yeah, you know, you're adding a few hundred calories at most on top of that fourteen hundred calories for an average woman, and uh, and you know, weight training is not going to add a whole lot more. You know, yeah. a typical weight weight training session is like one hundred and fifty calories. Yeah. And also these, these average numbers for resting metabolic rate are before somebody's deep into a diet. You know, these studies generally aren't on, on people who are severely dieting. I mean, I don't know if you've ever had it done on yourself, but I know in 2018, I went from a resting of, I want to say, I have the number somewhere, but somewhere in the 1800s to, mm -hmm. to by the end of the diet, it was in like the 1500s. Uh, and you know, that that's not counting other things like, you know, because I'm eating less, there's less thermic effective food and all that. So there's obviously over time going to be some of these adaptations, I guess you could say. Well, it's metabolic adaptation, but the metabolic adaptation that you're talking about there is significantly higher than what the research is showing. I mean, RMR drops on average are between five and 25 calories per day in grown adults. Um, and there's a lot of research. I mean, Burgess 91, Fricker 91, Kreitzman 92, Martin's 2020, all of these kind of show that that's the right range. I mean, even in the largest, um, versions of extreme dieting, I mean, the, the semi-starvation experiments, uh, you know, the, the, the Ansel keys things, mm -hmm. um, after weight loss was accounted for. So this is, this is where you're probably getting those larger numbers. 
if you're looking at resting metabolic rate, when you're heavier, your body is going to have a higher resting metabolic rate. So when you get sure. lighter, a smaller body requires less energy. So it's not that you had a, a massively different change in, um, in what your metabolic rate should be. You probably had only a 25 calorie change in that, but you require a lot less calories when you're smaller. I mean, even in those guys that lost hundreds of pounds, once the weight loss itself was accounted for, for the smaller person, the, uh, the discrepancy in what a, and a, a calculation predicted their resting metabolic rate should be. And what it was, was only about 75 to hundred calories per day. Hmm. And that's losing hundreds of pounds. Um, and typically the good thing about this is, I mean, it sucks for these people that have to lose a lot of weight because yes, you're, you might have a hundred less calories per day, but to put things in perspective, that's a fun size Snickers bar. If a fun size Snickers bar a day is what's keeping you from losing weight, that's probably a best case scenario. I mean, that's not bad. You know, we can, we can typically uh, adjust for that. And, um, let me just clarify real quick. So you're saying, okay, so somebody drops, you know, 30 pounds. So started at 200 pounds, they dropped down to 170. Are you saying that almost all of that drop and how much they are going to require to eat comes from your, not the, the weight loss itself, the weight loss itself, not the adaptation. Yes. Yeah. So how would you factor in though? Like you're not factoring in neat drops in neat, no, right? Not yet. Like no, no, okay. no, no. Just resting metabolic rate. Okay. So when you had said that, that your metabolic rate had dropped, if you're also talking about non-resting energy expenditure, that's actually the big one. Right. So um, the good thing is that resting metabolic rate drop, it tends to recover in one to two years. So if you lose, say, if you go from 300 pounds to 180 pounds, you're going to have a slightly depressed metabolic rate. Just your, your base metabolic rate is going to be depressed for maybe one or two years. And then it tends to recover if you maintain that new low weight. In, in most of the studies that look at it. Now, what you're talking about is metabolic adaptation, which is a great thing to bring up is that the two main things that will prevent a stall, assuming you are, um, you're following good info, you know, you're, you're keeping good logs, you're, you're actually monitoring what you're eating and all that. The two main things that happen is knee drops. So your non-resting energy expenditure, um, or non-exercise energy expenditure drops. Um, and that's all your fidgeting, your walking, all that kind of stuff. And uh, hunger drive goes up. Mm -hmm. And so for these people that think that they've stalled, typically the, the two big things that have caused this stall, assuming that they've got good practices elsewhere, is that um, they're moving a lot less and they, um, they're snacking more than what they think that they're snacking. And so those are the really two big things for metabolic adaptation that come into play. That's why metabolic damage isn't really a thing. And, and um, when you look at all of the uh, very low calorie diet research, it all shows that nobody gets metabolic damage. You know, right. your, your metabolism itself isn't damaged. It's off five to 25 calories or in extreme cases up to a hundred calories per day. But again, if it, there's no person in the world that a fun size Snickers bar is the make or break for weight loss. Right. So the real issues that you have with metabolic adaptation then are the fact that you stop moving and you start snacking more. So, the four things that I would look into before assuming that you even have a, um, a stall is, you know, one, um, is your calorie intake inaccurate? Because this is usually the biggest issue for most people. Um, they're underestimating how many calories, underestimating how many calories that they take in either they're, um, 
overlooking snacks. They're overlooking, you know, what they're cooking things in. If you're cooking things in butter or, or extra virgin olive oil or whatever it is, those are extra calories. Um, maybe you don't know that you're looking at cooked weights versus, um, uncooked weights. When you're looking at macros, all these types of things add in. And, um, on average, a person's off by about 500, nearly 500 calories per day. And even, um, even professional dietitians tend to be off by, by a good amount. And sometimes when the, in the really obese, when they were looking at this, you could be off by uh, as high as 50% up to 1100 calories per day. So if you're getting 1100 extra calories in the way yeah. you think you are, I mean, that's going to be a massive stall. Um, and so particularly with people that have a lot of prepackaged or, um, pre prepackaged food or who eat out a lot, there tends to be a lot more calories in your intake than what you think, because prepackaged food allows for a 20%, um, variance in the calories. So it could have up to 20% more calories than what's on the label. Right. And the average for eating out is about 20% more calories. But, um, but there's some fun studies that, that look at that. And, and in a couple of them, it's off by as much as, uh, as 200%. So if you're looking at a, uh, if you're, if you're tracking your food, when you're eating out, you talk about like compared to online menus, like what they say they have. Right. Oh yeah. Right. Those, yeah. I, I try to tell people I don't even, I mean, you know, I'm pretty good after 18 years at estimating calories, but you know, you, you go out to a restaurant with pasta and oils and stuff. I mean, you know, one extra tablespoon of oil here, you know, a quarter cup of cheese there. It's, it's just so hard. And you don't, you don't know how much butter they're using to cook the meat and you don't know how much oil they're using. You don't know how much, you know, and, and they're not following like, a, they're not, they don't have a, a an atomic scale and, and sure. they're making sure, you know, it just doesn't matter to them. Yeah. And I mean, I mean, it really shouldn't because in reality, if we're being good coaches, what we should be doing is pushing whole minimally processed foods. And then when you go out to eat, it's more of like a special celebratory occasion, in which case don't worry about the calories, just, just, you know, moderate yeah. if you so choose, depending on the situation, eat it and move on. If your issue is that you're constantly eating out, well, that's the issue you should address. Right. You know, I, and that's, I, um, there, actually, I did this a few times just out of curiosity. Uh, Chipotle's got like a pretty good nutrition calculator, whatever. So I was like, all right, let me just see how this breaks down. So uh, at least three times I have ordered Chipotle, brought it back, and then deconstructed it just to see like how much rice was there, how much cheese was there. And and usually it was off by about 30%. So it, it's yeah. somewhat in line with what you're saying. Yeah. I mean, and eating out. <sighs> It's it's really crazy because when you add in free side dishes and stuff like that, it could be off by 245%. I mean, yeah. it's pretty it's pretty crazy. So that that's something to keep in mind. A lot of coaches will tell their people, okay, say if you're doing macros, they'll say, okay, well, on average, look at the menu item and then add 20% hmm. as a way to counterbalance that. I don't do that. I tend to tell people just count it as an off-plan meal and enjoy it because I want people to understand that off-plan meals, off-plan meals don't mean it's bad. And I think that sure. if we're constantly like, we need to, you know, be very neurotic about this, then it, then it can be problematic for people. So no matter what you do, what I would at least suggest for coaches or people that are doing this at home is at least add 20% to whatever uh, a, a label says that you're eating out. Now, if you're making it at home, certainly follow the label. Yeah. Um, but, but if someone else is preparing it, if you're not preparing it, then it's probably a smart idea to at least add 20%. Yeah. Sure. So the other thing, the other thing to make sure that you're doing is um, not overestimating activity. One of the things that you had talked about was neat with metabolic adaptation. And that really holds true because that's, that's huge. So what I recommend people do is get a pedometer, wear it all the time that you are not exercising and, um, and use that as a way to track neat, because we know that if we are losing weight, 
one of the things that our body's going to do is it's going to say, okay, well, let's move a little bit less because we don't want to lose this weight because your body thinks I'm starving. It, you know, you're still in, you're still in that caveman biology where it thinks that it needs to stop fat loss because it doesn't realize that, um, that food is so prevalent today. I mean, we've never adjusted, we've never evolved to that. So using a pedometer when you're not exercising is a great thing. You can get a baseline and um, and see where that is. And then as you lose weight, you can keep an eye on that. And if that starts to drastically drop, well, there you go. You're, you're seeing the metabolic adaptation, but then you can consciously do something to correct that. So that's always a great thing. The other thing with overestimating your activity, stop following watches that show calorie burn. Oh, yeah. <laughs> do not do not counterbalance or overeat because of that those things are so off it's not even funny they use heart rate variability which is not a sign of calories burned they put it into equation it's an estimate of an estimate of an estimate and they're they're very off yeah all right you may be confusing weight loss versus fat loss um you know people retain water uh people add muscle um maybe you started creatine maybe you have more muscle glycogen because you've added in more carbs maybe you are on, on your menstrual cycle there's a lot of things that will throw off um your weight even if you're losing fat and uh as an example for me I, this is probably the most ridiculous example that i've ever seen but i always use it because i because i love it i had one client over the course of four months who lost 18 inches. We keep three, I keep three midsection measurements, okay. um, hips, waist, or yeah, hips, waist, and, um, and abdominal navel. Okay. And, um, over four months, he lost 18 inches off of these midsection measurements. Okay. But the scale dropped one pound. And so if you have these, these distinct changes in, um, or, or not changes in, in weight, it's a really good idea from the start to keep a variety of, of metrics, you know, body, body measurements, progress pictures, all those types of things. And, um, and be conscious of this because you could think that you're in a stall when in reality you're progressing just fine and you shouldn't go nuts and, and adjust your program. So, um, so keeping proper measurements and watching trends over time is important. Most people will lose, um, lose a little bit of motivation if they don't see changes in a week or two. But, um, but seeing trends over three to four weeks is usually a, a better indicator of what's actually going on. If you're holding water, you might hold water for a certain period of time. You might drop it a little bit later. So, so keep an eye on those things over three to four weeks and don't get too jumpy about making massive changes early. Yeah. If I can provide a, uh, another ridiculous example of my own, uh, I talked about on the podcast before. So I just historically hold a lot of water and it, it's pretty much within a few weeks of dieting it might. One of the things and reasons I like to track calories is there is a, a stress relief there of just knowing because, you know, having done it for so long, I have a pretty predictable response, but it's predictably inconsistent <laughs> in that, you know, it's, it's kind of all over. So back in 2020, uh, and I, I always preface this by saying I do not recommend doing this. I was just experimenting. I did about two weeks at a thousand calories. Now, this is as an active, you know, at the time, 185 to 190 pound male. Uh, mm -hmm. just to see what would happen. So I'll go down the weights here I have per day, 186.2, 185.6, back up to 186.2, up higher 186.6, up again, 186.8, 185, 183, back up to 184, up to 187. I ended it slightly higher than I started after two weeks. Now, obviously I was losing fat on a thousand calories a day, but, but if you didn't know, if you were just like, Hey, I'm just starting this diet, I'm going to crash diet. And then you tortured yourself with two weeks of a thousand calories. 
oh my God, I actually gained weight. My metabolism is broken. You know, what's mm. wrong with me? And I'm just, and of course, after I did this and I ate normally again, I had a, you know, a whoosh as it was called and dropped yeah. the water. Um, yeah. But it was like, if it wasn't me, I just wouldn't believe that. I would have said, you're, you're tracking calories wrong. Something's wrong there. Um, and that's, there's, like I said, almost a freedom in knowing the process and knowing mm -hmm. this has to be losing fat, but there can just be some wild fluctuations. Yeah. And, and like you said, when you drop calories that significantly, there's a lot of instances where you're going to hold water weight. Um, one of the best things that you can possibly do in those situations for people listening, I'm sure that, that you know this, but make sure that you standardize um, the times that you take these measurements to cut out as much of this water sure. flux as possible. So take it first thing in the morning after going to the bathroom before having food or water. And if you do that same measurement every time, you're going to get a much more consistent reading than if you take one in the afternoon one day, because you're going to have sure. more fecal matter, more food, um, you know, maybe stress during the day is causing you to hold water. Maybe sodium is causing you to hold, you know, all these different things kind of add in. So if you're, if you're jumping around to when you're taking these measurements, you're going to see some really wonky results. For sure. Yeah. Just to clarify, this was always same time after yeah. the bathroom and all that, but, but yeah, just to say that, um, and again, don't recommend people do that. I just kind of <laughs> testing things. So, so last thing for nutrition, um, if all of these other things have been accounted for, you might have some biological issues in play. Um, certainly diabetes and hypothyroidism can, can add in, in that it, it's not that you can break that energy balance thing that we were talking about earlier. It's always about energy balance, but it can shift that equation. So maybe if you were healthy, you would lose weight at 1400 calories, but because of hypothyroidism or something else, now you only, now you only lose weight on 1100. So you're, you're much lower than what you think you can't beat it. You can't beat energy balance, but it can shift that equation. Um, and certain medications can do it as well antidepressants, corticosteroids, anxiolytics, birth control, all those kind of things can, can add in. The one point that I do want to bring up though, because I think that this can help a lot of people, particularly, um, uh, you know, females that may be dealing with this PCOS, PCOS itself, women who are, who have PCOS and, and women that are otherwise healthy on the same diets of protein and calories, if everything else is equated, body weight, body composition, all that kind of stuff, will lose weight in the exact same way unless your thyroid is completely out of balance. So assuming that you have your thyroid in balance, um, PCOS itself does not prevent you from losing body fat. And this is a funny thing that, um, that Spencer and I, Spencer Nadolsky and I, um, had discussions in my group with some of my clients about this, um, that was very helpful for a lot of the people in there. And I think that it's, it's a good thing for women with PCOS to understand you are not doomed what you do experience is a harder time getting there. And you don't experience a harder time getting there from a biological perspective because your body reacts the same way as an otherwise healthy person. The issue is women with PCOS tend to have a much higher dropout rate. Um, there is there is more depression. There's more anxiety. There is um, less um, less confidence with body image, all these things kind of add in. So typically the big discrepancy between women with PCOS and, and otherwise healthy women is, is how you deal with stress and how you view yourself. So I want to bring that up because I don't want this to be a point where you're like, well, I've got this, I can never get past it. You can, and, and having this knowledge can give you that strength to be able to do that. So I think that's really important to address. Yeah. And just, I mean, probably the women listening know this, but uh, PCOS meaning polycystic ovary syndrome, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and it's, it's kind of a, it's kind of a vague, um, a vague thing because 
in in medical, we don't have a massive understanding of all of the different causes. It's probably a bunch of subsets of a of a disease. There's probably different presentations. Um, but one of the things that they found is that when they test women and then they hold these these calorie and protein count study, they all seem to progress. So that's that's a good thing. Yeah. All right. So moving on to fitness. Um, you know, fitness stalls, once you've addressed the nutrition, I would address nutrition before I would even start to look into fitness, unless there's a blaring issue with your fitness that, that you can, that you can address. Cause usually a lot of the fitness issues stem from nutrition issues anyways. Um, but you know, nutrition stalls are, are, you know, you no longer feel like you're adding muscle, your strength has peaked or regressed. Um, and, um, and you know, you're having difficulties there. There's a few things that I would look for before I would try to address anything, and, um, and the biggest one is maybe your routine is a bit too complex or your volume is too high. Uh, a lot of people get into that mode where they're like, you know, I, I want to do every exercise that I've possibly seen that, that people online say is the best exercise for this. And what ends up happening is, um, the volume becomes insane, particularly for beginners who don't need a massive amount of volume to progress. I mean, you put a beginner on, on any kind of training program and they tend to, they tend to progress pretty well. Um, so what I would do is I would look at your, at your volume in particular, and, um, and a good general recommendation is 10 or 12 to 20 working sets per muscle group per week. And if you're hitting that as a, as a beginner or intermediate, you probably don't need to go much beyond that. And I think that, um, you know, even when I started, I was probably doing way too much volume because you, you tend to get these from you know, bodybuilders and these, and sure. these splits that a lot of bodybuilders are doing, maybe they need more volume than 12 sets per muscle group per week, but they're an advanced trainee and you're not. Um, and so what it's going to do to you is it's going to cut into your fatigue. It's actually going to slow your progress. More is not better in this instance. And, um, and addressing this first can solve problems a lot of the time. Let me, right, um, you... I'm going to cut this actually probably back with the nutrition stuff. So let me just round that, that part off there. Um, since that, that is leaning more towards like the fat loss aspect, right. Is generally what people are talking about with, with stalls, with nutrition. I mean, obviously there are people who stall gaining weight, but I think for most people, it's more of a stall with losing weight. Um, going back to the, the sources, right. And so you said there's a small metabolic adaptation, right. But you said most mm -hmm. of that is due to the actual weight loss itself, right. Mm -hmm. What you mentioned, there was, there's need and people just kind of just becoming less active, and then appetite, I, I think, is a really good one to bring up because a lot of people don't realize a lot of what people perceive of how much they're eating or not eating almost entirely comes down to appetite. Like a lot of people who are very overweight who think that they don't, it's because, I mean, anybody who's been doing this a long time has probably experienced this. If you actually track it or you've been bulking for a long time, somehow 4,000 calories feels like so much because you've been bulking, yeah. you've been bulking, you've been bulking. But yep. you could be dieting and 4,000 is like, wait a minute, I'm done my 4,000 calories for the day. If you were to have a refeed or a cheat day or something like that. And it's just like, wait a minute, like that just vanished and, mm -hmm. and vice versa on the other end. You know, I've had days where I was just sick of food. It's 7 p.m. I've only had a thousand calories and I haven't even thought about it because I'm just not hungry versus, you know, dieting like crazy. So I, I think hunger is one that really a lot of people uh, forget. But uh, or the, would you say those three or four things are pretty much all of it? Or is there anything else potentially that could be out there? You mean, is there anything else that, that would be causing the stall first before looking to address it? Correct. Or, um, or even would you say it's always it's like something I've talked with an acquaintance about is 
there seems to be for a lot of people a range. Now that range that people maintain that probably comes down to these factors, right? Other, but you know, I I think some people, I believe it, it's a mistake conclusion that somebody says, well, I'm at 2,500, so I will drop 100 calories, and then I would start to lose weight. Sometimes a lot of people will say you actually have to drop a substantial amount to see significant weight. Do you go by that, or do you initially start with a very small amount? It depends on the person's experience level and their body composition. If a person has a lot more body fat, you can be more cavalier with dropping calories because uh, having more body fat is metabolically protective. If a person is, um, if a person is new to training, you can, in a reverse, you can add a lot more calories. I mean, Brad Schoenfeld and and crew did a study where they were talking about essentially what the the term lean gaining is the the optimal gain of muscle while gaining minimal fats. If you're an advanced trainee, you may only be able to handle 250 more calories above maintenance. But if you're a, if you're a beginner, you may be able to handle a thousand calories above maintenance. They had a, they had a 500 to a thousand calorie range for beginners, um, 250 to 500 calories for advanced. So there, a lot of this depends on who you're working with. And one of the reasons that getting a good coach is a good idea is because they cut through this bullshit. You know, they'll be able to tell you, okay, well, this is how much I would take off. Um, to be able to keep you, uh, to keep you progressing well. And what I would typically do is I would look at rates of, of loss or gain as my guide and, um, and make adjustments based on progress over time. Assuming the person is, um, assuming the person is consistent with their, with their tracking and, and their intake. And, um, you know, because you can look at a person's body composition and say, okay, well, this person's relatively lean. They probably shouldn't be losing two to three pounds a week. Sure. But if a person's obese, then two to three pounds a week, I probably wouldn't blink at it. I'd be like, okay, we'll just, we'll, we're going to stick with this until, you know, we see signs to change. Um, so, so to address that, it depends. <laughs> and so that's, you yeah. know, it's, it's like a fitness and nutrition. The answer is always, it depends. Sure. Um, and this is, this is one of those, it depends moments, um, you know, and for strength and plateauing in, in, in fitness, one of the things that you were hinting at and we didn't say explicitly is, are, you know, are you well-fed or are you in a calorie deficit? You know, if you're in a, if you're in a massive calorie deficit and you're relatively lean and, um, and you're an intermediate or more advanced trainee, yeah, I mean, you may not progress in strength, you know, maybe the best yeah. case scenario is holding steady. Um, but, but, uh, but, you know, having, having unrealistic expectations of, of, um, progress is a big thing that a lot of people deal with. Now it's, it tends to hit beginners more than anybody else. I mean, beginners get, get thrown off because of a couple of things that they're not used to. I mean, the first six weeks that you start a new training program, particularly for beginners, there's a lot of neural adaptation. I mean, your, sure. your, your nervous system learns to use your muscles. So your, your strength is going to skyrocket in those first six weeks or so. Um, and then it'll slow down. And a lot of beginners will think, okay, well, I've plateaued. No, you haven't plateaued. It's just you're you're past that neural adaptation phase. Um, and the flip side of that coin is you can't do the exact same thing forever. After about 12 to 16 weeks, if you aren't progressive overloading, which means if you aren't giving your body new challenges, either through lifting more weight, uh, more reps, more sets, um, you know, lifting more explosively, your body will adjust to that as well. So it's this balance of, okay, well, you know, I, I know that there's going to be a slowdown here, but if it stalls after this amount of time, then maybe it's time to change things up. I always like to tell people, you know, if, if you're lifting within a couple reps of failure, just keep pushing the weight up as, as much as you can in that and understand that, that those first couple exercises are going to progress much more quickly than the exercises later in the day because of fatigue buildup. Um, 
but, but yeah, I mean, unrealistic expectations, having your nutrition on point, like you talked about is a big thing. And, um, and you know, the last thing that I would look into really other than, um, than stress management is, um, you know, and tracking diligently is, um, you know, are you getting sleep? And this is some, something that literally everybody tends to ignore. And, um, and I think that if, if you look at the research in this, a lot of the research suggests that for a person that, that weight trains as much as, you know, our clients do, or, or as we do eight to nine hours is probably what you should be shooting for, which kind of blows people's minds because they're like, well, I'm getting seven. It's like, yeah. you're probably low. I mean, that seven is what is good for a sedentary individual who isn't, you know, exerting themselves. And I think How that blows are you with your, you know, there's a lot of stuff out there on uh, sleep hygiene. I think um, Dr. Greg Potter, um, Dr. Matthew Walker, or, you know, two people, a lot of people have seen, do you try to follow a very consistent sleep hygiene schedule every night? Personally, obviously we recommend it for clients, but you know, it's a business. Oh thing. yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm extremely, I'm extremely real, extremely regimented as far as, as sleep schedule goes. I mean, I'm in bed by 7 45 PM. Wow. Okay. Keep in mind that I'm in Hawaii. So I'm in, I'm in bed at 7 45 PM every night. And then I'm up by 5 AM. Okay. And, uh, and nearly every single night, that's the way that I do it. And the way that I, the reason that I'm, I'm on that schedule is because, um, I've got clients all over the world, but the majority are mainland United States and Canada. Mm-hmm. And so, um, that puts me on a, on a closer time frame to the people that I'm working with. Right. So I'm, I'm, I'm up and, you know, about when they've got questions. So I think that, that, that sleep quality and, um, consistency of sleep is a really big thing. A regular schedule is a really big thing. If you work shift periods. I mean, there's not a whole lot that you can do. So the best thing is, you know, get as much as you possibly can. But I think that people are really, um, really surprised to hear how much that can affect you. I mean, if you're getting, there were studies that compared 5.5 or six hours of sleep to eight hours of sleep. And some of the men had 50% less testosterone than when they started Yeah, through sleep, through sleep deprivation. I mean, there's going to be a, if you're in a calorie deficit, that's, that's more muscle lost. That's more fat retained. You're going to lose the same amount of weight Mm -hmm. based on the energy balance, but you're going to lose more muscle. You're going to retain more fat. It's going to affect your performance. Your injury risk is going to go up. Depression is going to go up. You know, your, your propensity for having depression is going to go up. I mean, it affects all these different things. Yeah. And, um, and that's the thing that I, I have found in my practice, that's hardest to get people to focus on because it, you don't see this, this distinct payoff, particularly when you first start getting those eight to nine hours of sleep, you're like, I feel worse than I did when I was getting six. And, um, and that's just cause you're catching up on some of that sleep. And I think people try to counterbalance this loss of sleep with caffeine without realizing that caffeine largely does not give energy. It, it masks fatigue. Right. And so what we're doing is we're band-aiding this, issue that we have and, and we're constantly just upping the dose of caffeine to deal with it so yeah it's been a long time i, I miss caffeine but i haven't had caffeine <laughs> in years. Um, but i was never like a big pre-workout guy but at least like a cup of coffee or two was nice but i don't really do it at all anymore um but i'm i'm sorry i was just telling my family that uh this weekend that i was never somebody who could just get five hours of sleep throughout the week and then catch up on the weekend i have a lot of friends like that and, and then they just crash hard i literally get six hours of sleep one night and I just feel useless. Like, I don't know how same. people do it. Um, yeah. And, and that, well, that catch up sleep doesn't work the same as sure as standardized sleep. I mean, it does, it does help recovery a bit, but 
this isn't like this isn't like nutrition where largely you know you can look at things in the longer term except for protein intake which you which you want to have regular intervals if you're trying to retain muscle or build muscle calories itself it's it seems to be more okay well what did you do at the end of the week you know you mm-hmm. could have had like 5000 calories one day and like 2000 calories another day and if it balances out it's okay um sleep doesn't do that uh, sleep is, sleep is very, it's very regimented. It needs to be very regimented if you want to optimally perform and optimally recover. Yeah. So signs of a stall, um, you might experience, experience sustained drops in motivation. Uh, you could use, you could see a sudden loss of strength. One of the reasons that I wanted to talk about signs of a stall is one of the things that, um, that I think that people will misconstrue as a stall is that they didn't lift as much weight as they did last week. Okay. Well, you know, are you experiencing a large amount of stress in your life? Did you get, you know, did is your sleep, um, is your sleep disturbed? Are you having job or relationship stress? All of these things can add in. So a single week of having a stall is probably not something to to worry about. But if this is consistent over multiple weeks, then it might be time to address things. Um, you know, and the the biggest thing is is looking at your recovery and you know both mental and physical and figuring out what is causing some of these drops in, in performance or recovery and, and addressing those first before thinking that you have to put in some specific things to address a plateau itself. But once you've gone through all of the stuff and, uh, and you're looking for possible solutions to address your, your stall, you know, that you have your, your sleeps in, uh, in, in, uh, in good check, you've got your nutrition in good check. There's a few things that you can do. And this is, this is where I want people to be able to use this as, as kind of a step-by-step. Okay. Well, I looked at this, I looked at this, I looked at this, and maybe it's one, maybe it's a couple of these things that are going on. Um, maybe you have a specific weakness. Maybe you are a, um, a person that is an intermediate or advanced, uh, lifter and you have issues with sticking points. Um, you can address that by sticking point work, band and chain work, negative work, um, specific accessories, accessories, anything with a purposeful, um, alteration to your program to address a deficiency. Maybe you aren't using the progressive overlay that we talked about earlier, um, either increasing volume or in increasing the, uh, the load or explosiveness of a lift can, can help this. But like we said earlier, it's about 12 weeks that, um, that sticking into the same, um, the same, you know, loads or intensities or, or volumes, um, work. And then after that, you're going to have to improve things by changing something up in some way. Um, if you've been going with the same routine for, about four months or more, maybe it's time to add in some variety. Um, lifting weights in different orders or switching exercises can cover weak points as well as provide mental stimulation. And um, and I find goal setting can make a big difference with a lot of this, particularly anything that you can control. And I find that goal setting, I mean, goal setting could take an entire conversation in and of itself, Sure. but, um, but choosing something that you can control to help motivate you and, and act as a sign of progress is really important. And what I mean by that is don't say I need to get to 175 pounds. That is the absolute worst way to set goals. Um, you know, if you're, if you're 200 pounds, say my goal is 175 pounds, never do that. The problem with that is you can't, you can't control whether you're going to get to 175 pounds. Maybe you look better at 185 pounds. On top of that, what happens if you look great, but you fail to get there? Then you might feel like you've done something wrong. If you do get to 175 pounds, 
you have lost the very thing that gave you a sense of purpose. You have to start all over with motivation, figure out something else. There's just a host of issues that this can cause. So pick something that um, is controllable. You know, how many hours of sleep can you get a night roughly? Uh, how, what percentage of, you know, at home meals do you want to have per week? How many times do you get into the gym per week? These types of things you actually have a lot of control over. So choose something like that. And when you choose habit-based or routine-based um routine-based metrics as your sign of progress, you tend to um, do much better long-term because this is something that you have a little bit of a modicum of control over. You can work towards losing body fat. You can't work towards losing 15% body fat. You can't control the, the, the absolute amount or a specific number. So that's, that's always a helpful way to stay on, ta on task. I think it also lends itself more towards doing this in the long run because something I, I've kind of had to deal with more in the last I would say five years, but it's something I talked about on the podcast as well, is that, you know, it, it you can't stay in this endeavor and this lifestyle if it's always about a, I don't want to say tangible, but something that's like, okay, I want to lose X amount of fat or gain this much muscle because at some point it's just not going to happen. Like you can't just keep gaining strength. You can't keep gaining muscle mm -hmm. forever. Right. And no. if that's why you do it, if that's where the positive feedback loop comes from, then eventually that's that well is going to run dry I don't want to say very quickly, but it will eventually run dry, right? Uh, versus if it's process oriented and you you kind of fall in love with with the overall lifestyle. Like, I mean, at, at this point, I don't know how long you've been doing this, Alan, but obviously a long time. You know, it's probably hard for you to imagine not doing it, right? It's just like who right. you are, and and same thing. And and so for me, it's like, well, I can't set a goal of gaining five pounds of muscle this year because I mean, it's just not going to happen. And even if it could happen, I can't predict that it's going to happen, but I right. can say, okay, I'm going to go to the gym this much. I'm, I'm going to be this consistent. Um, and eventually it becomes who you are. Well, the, you know, the hope is that, um, is that this becomes an, an intrinsic motivation, right? You, you hope it's not necessary, but you hope that for a person to maintain something long-term, they actually get joy out of the activity. Now, you don't have to love going to the gym to make the gym a long-term uh, part of your life, but you do need to find some value in something about going to the gym. Maybe you hate going to the gym, but you love the way that it makes you feel. Maybe you view yourself as a lifter. So that's what you do, you know, and finding those, those in, in more internalized motivations are real, is a really important thing. Um, I like to point out a quote by uh, Muhammad Ali where he said that, um, I'm going to botch this, but he said to the effect of he hated every moment of training, but he loved winning. Mm -hmm. So he never made it to intrinsic. I mean, when I go on vacation, I find a gym to go to because I like to do it even on vacation. Everybody's, Same. you know, I talk to a lot of people and they're like, oh, I'm going to take off. I don't want to take off. I want to go to the gym. Yeah. Same. But you know, in, in Muhammad Ali's case, he probably wouldn't want to go to the gym and that's okay because he found, um, he found an internalized motivation in that he viewed himself as the best and he damn well made sure that it was so. And so if you can find these things that you love about training, it can keep you going long-term. So, you know, do you like the way that it makes you feel? Do you like, um, do you like the, the way that it allows you to keep up with your kids? Do you like the quality of life that it gives you? You don't have to get to loving the gym, but you do have to find what you love about the process. Yeah. So I, I, I agree, I guess. Cause like, I think of myself with cardio and I really don't like cardio, but I've been consistently doing <laughs> it since I was 10 years old. Right. Like every single week I get in a few sessions of cardio. So 
I guess in that sense, I mean, I don't think I, well, I probably at times do say I hate cardio. So I, I think it's a, it's a valid point. I think when I think of these athletes who I, I know a lot of, or who were high level athletes and because they hated a lot of it, maybe they liked winning, but they hated it that when they're done, they just completely stopped doing over. anything. Yeah. And that I think is problematic. So ideally you don't hate it. I don't know too many people who could probably go to the gym for 40 years, just hating it <laughs> for 40 years, you know? Well, I think I think most of the people that are listening to this are probably not professional athletes, but finding yeah. the thing finding the thing in it that you find rewarding, yeah, is is an important thing. And you know, figuring out what that is 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 something that is going to be on you. And it's you know, it can change over time. Just because you don't love going to the gym now doesn't mean that it's not going to be that way at some point. So figure out at this point in time what is it that you that you really enjoy about about doing this and and lean into that. And initially. What most people find is that it is very external. You know, you you want to you want to go, but you hate training, but you like having a, a six pack, so it's worth the effort. Um, you want to get praise from you know the opposite sex or significant other. If that's what gets you started, that's fine. Um, but always be on the lookout for these things that really make this a, an enjoyable part of your life, whatever it is. Um, and and you'll do a much better uh, a much better. Uh, chance long-term to, uh, to keep this up. Yeah. Yeah. For sure, man. So the, you know, after, after, um, adjusting and prioritizing recovery, the last thing that I would say, if you've got, um, you know, your forms down, you've, you've adjusted all these different things and, and you're still having problems. It's time for a deload. Um, you know, you, 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 you're fatigued to the point where, um, stepping off the gas and letting yourself recharge is probably a good idea. And there's a lot of ways that you can do that. I mean, you can simply take off a week entirely. I don't like to use that. I like to tell my clients to reduce load and volume by about 50% for a week. The reason that I do that, and, and I don't get down on any coach that wants to tell people, you know, take off. The reason that I don't do that generally is I find that um, that going in and working at like half speed tends to work really well because it allows people to recover while continuing to maintain um, the habits of showing up to the gym. Yeah. And for people that are first starting out or intermediates, that's more important to me than having you know a new PR every time you go to the gym. I would rather you just get in and make this a part of who you are than, than really worrying about um, you know being being the next great person in, in your gym. It's, it's all about building that consistency and, and routine. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I, I think taking a week off is fine. I've had plenty of times where I have taken a week off and it hasn't hurt anything. But I think that's because like you, like, usually if I go on vacation, I am working out like it's it's like when we went to uh, took two vacations last summer, one was a cruise, I worked out pretty much every day because there's a gym there. One was uh, hiking Glacier National Park. There's no gym there. So I'm still active, right? But I'm not worried about that. I didn't lift for a week. Uh, mm -hmm. but, I, but I think to your point, the habit is a really big thing. And I know when I did used to do those kind of deloads where I'd go in and, and maybe do half the weight, I went from, okay, I, I kind of need a break to chomping at the bit because I'm like getting halfway. You want to get I'm back like, to it. Get, yeah. yeah, right. So yeah. I think it's good in that sense. Yeah. And I mean, kind of similar to the, uh, to the emphasizing recovery and, and using deloads intelligently. I mean, take a rest day. There are so many people that I see that try to work out seven days a week because they want progress to come faster and faster. And that just doesn't, it just doesn't seem to work that way. Particularly if you're working out intensely when you are working out a day or two of rest a week is probably a good thing. You know, get your meal prep done in those days that you have that, that have that time off. You got a little bit extra time, throw something in an Instapot and take advantage of that time to really make it, um, make your life easier. Sure. Sure. Yeah. 
So, well, I don't know if you had any other points. I thought it was a very thorough breakdown, both nutrition and training wise. Um, anything else you, you want to add there? No, I mean, I, I want people to be able to look at this and say, okay, well, there's there's all these different points that I could be, you know, addressing. Make sure that you've got the things out of the way that are um, that are important prior to looking into any specific issues. Um, but it all comes down to consistency and and uh, and you know, keeping good logs, whether it's um, whether it's your nutrition or whether it's uh, monitoring habits or whether it is logging your workouts have a reference point so you are able to identify what is causing you issues. And that doesn't mean that you always have to have the most strict um, most strict tracking of everything, but particularly if you feel like you're slowing down or stalling, that's the time to really start to pay attention to that stuff. Awesome, man. So I, I know you got the Instagram, you got the Facebook group. I'll link both of those down below. Um, where else can people find your stuff? Uh, you can go to mauiathletics.com, M-A-U-I. And uh, in the footer, we've got links to all the different social media uh, sites so you can catch up with me. If you have any questions or want to see any of the research that we talked about, send me a message on Instagram. I don't mind helping out and sending those to you guys um, or with any other questions. I'm sure that, that you know, um, either of us will will be able to uh, to address it in, in some way. So reach out to us. Sure. All right, man. Well, thanks again. All right. Thanks, David. Appreciate it.